a very popular phrase in therapy circles is change requires discomfort. Any new way of doing a thing in terms of the accomplishment equation is more costly than the old way of doing something if for no other reason than because you have to think about the new way where the old way happened without thinking. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired podcast network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit adhdessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? I am running a virtual ADHD summer camp for parents, beginning on Monday, July 18th, and running for five weeks until Thursday, August 18th. These parenting groups will meet for 90 minutes on Mondays and on Thursdays. One section meets from 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. Eastern, and the other meets from 5 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Your time zone may vary, of course. Each day will have its own topic, so this is a little bit different from the normal parenting groups. Each day will have its own topic, although time will be provided for questions and sharing and connecting throughout, because I know how important that connection component is. Week one looks at parental self-care on Monday, and then parenting as leadership on Thursday. Week two provides an overview of ADHD and a tutorial on ADHD-friendly systems and structures. Week three will look at family connection on Monday and then improving communication on Thursday. During week four, we will explore anxiety, both what it is and how to manage it, and we'll examine my trademarked wall of awful model. Week five, we'll wrap it all up by discussing how these topics interconnect and exploring parenting challenges more deeply with a full day allotted to your questions and sharing of your challenges. There will, of course, be time for questions and sharing throughout the groups, but during week five, we'll have a full day devoted only to that. If this is something that's interesting to you, email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com, and I'll be sure to connect with you to get you all the information you need. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. And if you want to support this show, a great way to do so is by providing a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. It really helps others find the show through that algorithm magic, and that helps me to help more people. Of course, this episode, like so many others, was edited by Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. I'm glad to have him on the team. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Brandon Tressers of Effective Artistry. Brandon is a licensed clinical professional counselor, trained professional actor, an amateur singer-songwriter, a former school teacher, and a self-described enthusiastic, if sometimes ill-prepared, husband and father. He's been helping children and adults with their executive functioning challenges for over a decade, and has been doing so as a licensed therapist for the last five years. In this wide-ranging episode, Brandon shares his accomplishment equation. He talks about motivation as resource management, ways to recover energy, negative versus positive aims, and why change requires discomfort. All right, let's get rolling. My name is Brandon Tessers. I am a therapist. I run a small private practice called Effective Artistry in the state of Illinois, where we do therapy services and also executive functioning coaching services. And we specialize in working with neurodiversity and executive functioning issues. We were talking a little bit about your accomplishment equation. So I'm also, in addition to being a therapist specialized in all these things, I am neurodivergent. And so a lot of this is based on like my approach to how I'm able to understand things and then workshopping things with other people and clients and all that. Uh, But the, the accomplishment equation, I think to me is something that I think of as kind of boring. And every time I share it, people act like it's not. So I'm curious how it will come across (laughs) because it really starts with this simply. It's 
anything that any person does or could do, considers doing, has a value to that person. And we know that we talk about this all the time, you know, value being, and I can break these things down into further if, if we have time and want to go into that, but value being what they think will come of it and how much they subjectively care about that, which varies from person to person, but also varies within an individual from one context to another. And we talk a lot about this. People care more about things, care less about things. The other side of the equation though, is that everything has a cost not just what you're going to get out of it, but what you think it will cost you, what resources it will take for you to be able to accomplish it. And that that cost also varies from person to person and varies within an individual person from context to context. And I think that's a very important piece to look at, especially when we're talking about ADHD, is to keep in mind that variation in cost. So this has got me immediately thinking about my current predicament, which is I have a black belt test coming up. A couple of months ago, I would have said, I am not ready. Now I'm like, I don't really feel like I'm ready. So I'm more ready than I used to be, right? I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I'm doing better. But there are times when I need to go exercise, right? Like I need to go downstairs and pick up the kettlebells, hop on the treadmill. And I have trouble motivating to do that. So I'm trying to frame it around the accomplishment equation, right? Like my benefit is I will feel healthier. I will feel stronger. I will be able to get my black belt, which I've been working on for years and years. And I really want to do that. The cost is not as obvious sometimes. Like it's, I guess the cost is I have to get off the couch and not be lazy, but that doesn't necessarily feel like a cost. Can we play with that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's the whole point of this that I, for me to develop it is because words like motivation and laziness, I don't find to be particularly useful because of exactly what you're talking about. They're, they're descriptive. They're accurate ways to talk about what somebody is feeling or doing, but only after the fact, right? Like if a person is supposed to do task X, whether they've determined that themselves or somebody else has determined that for them, and they don't, and we don't understand why, we don't have a clear reason to point to, we're just going to say, well, it's because they were lazy, or at least that's one option that we could say. And if they had done it, we could say that they were motivated meaning that the only difference between those two things is just whether or not the person did the thing. So they're useful ways to be able to think about it, but don't often give us things to do differently. Like don't enable a person to view what things they could change. In terms of cost, cost for me, it's always about the use of finite resources. And there are finite resources like you're talking about, some of us are more aware of, and some people are just not aware very much of some of these at all. Time is one of those, and people tend to have a pretty good awareness and focus on time. Of course, that shifts in terms of like monitoring it closely <laughs> as time is passing, especially with ADHD people. Energy is one. Attention is one. Awareness is one. Working memory. Awareness and working memory are interchangeable terms that we can only do so much. I like this as a way to approach these questions because by getting rid of the idea of motivation and laziness, it lets us look at things a little more starkly, I suppose. And, and here's kind of the basic rule that we start with is if a person believes that the value of a thing is less than the cost of a thing, they don't do that thing. They might be incorrect about what it costs or what the value is, but it, this is all filtered through an individual's perception, right? If a person believes that the value of a thing is worth the cost of a thing, is higher than or equal to the cost of the thing, then they do it. And there's only one exception which is if they can't afford to do it. And that piece gets lost a lot. The idea that, yes, I do value this thing. Yes, I value it so much that I even think like, for example, going down and working out and all these benefits that it has, it's worth the cost in terms of my time and energy and money, you know, whatever things it costs me to go do it. And in that moment, you don't have those resources available to spend, which is why it's not happening in that moment. Because if we look at it that way, then we can come up with things to try and change in order to make it happen later, as opposed to just this kind of uh, indescribable feeling or sense of motivation versus laziness. I like that because sticking with my wanting to exercise in the morning component, right? That's when I have the time. So the, the limited resource of time, I have that in the morning. What I don't have is energy. Lately, I'm waking up and I'm kind of drained. I'm not waking up with like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at the moment. So what I don't have is energy. 
paradoxically, I know cognitively, but not like viscerally, not sort of emotionally. I know that if I go downstairs and exercise, I will wind up with more energy than I had when I started. And I was learning that because I've been working on this exercise thing. Where I am right now is my kids were home all last week from school. They had a school vacation. And so I didn't exercise last week because I was doing dad stuff the whole time. And, and that the time part disappeared. But losing the exercise momentum means that I'm feeling a little more tired this morning and I broke the pattern. And so I'm not remembering as obviously that one of the benefits of going down and walking on the treadmill and then picking up the kettlebells and then doing my forms is that I will come back upstairs in an hour, an hour and 15 minutes with more energy than I had when I went downstairs. Yeah. And so in terms of the language that we're using, what you're saying there is that week break that you took in whatever specific way. And certainly we could, you know, go back and forth brainstorming, coming up with things, but in whatever way it increased the cost of working out in the morning to a point where you can't afford the energy anymore, right? It was within your budget. Or something else has shifted so that your energy level in the morning is now lower than it used to be or a combination of those two things. And one of the things that I found is in the morning, this morning, and it was happening before I was exercising consistently, I do like sort of bureaucratic nonsense stuff, right? So like, it's not really nonsense, but billing clients, emailing people, that kind of stuff that's happening in the morning because I'm trying to wake up and that's a thing that is has enough structure to it that I don't need to be too creative and it's a low cost if it takes longer than it needs to and those kinds of things. And then as my energy comes in, I'm already doing that. So instead of going to exercise, I get more efficient at emailing and billing people and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at there, I think that's especially important for parents to be aware of this idea of there are things that happen for reasons, presumably, but that we can't observe. So it effectively feels random and out of our control. Like in a given person's schedule of a day, there are reasons that somebody prefers to sleep from 2 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. Like I personally do. That's how my brain and body work best. I don't do it. I haven't done it for years because I have three young children. I don't get to, you know, I'm up at 6 a.m. But things like that, where the morning I'm better suited to intellectual tasks and physical tasks are better suited in the afternoon or at night, especially when you're taking medication, like many ADHD people do, that can affect this kind of stuff too. So like one very common thing I see here is people trying to either as the kid themselves or for their children, get them to do homework right after they get home from school. You're home from school, get your homework done. And it all makes sense. There's high value there, right? Like get it done. Then you don't have to stress about it. Then you're free to do whatever else you want, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't do it. And then we keep asking this question over and over. Why, why, why? Especially if we focus on motivation, then, okay, how do we motivate them to do it? Sometimes we get into like rewards and punishments, kind of behavioral modification stuff. And then they end up stressing out all day and they do it at 9 p.m. What I've seen a lot of the time is that for kids like that, if you just change it and say, hey, you do it at 9 p.m. anyway, why don't tomorrow, why don't you aim for 9 p.m.? And just let's all agree to let go for a week or a day just to try it. Let go of the stress of you should start earlier because people will say it's the stress that gets me going at night. And maybe it's true, but maybe it's not. Maybe your body just does better. Like a lot of kids, maybe you just are drained cognitively at the end of the school day and trying to immediately do more schoolwork isn't something you can really swing at that point. Another homework battle that we see too is the kid that does kind of what I described in my morning where they come home. And then they kind of reset and need to build back up to have the cognitive power to do the homework. So they play Minecraft for an hour. Maybe they only need a half an hour. Like maybe if the purpose of Minecraft is to get them cognitively alert again, maybe that happens in a half an hour. And then the second half an hour is them actually spending some of that finite resource of cognition on Minecraft instead of on homework. Potentially. This is why I like using this language, because it allows us to observe those things differently. If we're talking about it as this kind of motivation thing, which is invisible, but exists, whatever, then we don't really have a way to observe that. Like, at what point are you ready to do whatever other task? And, and we're starting to talk about what I call energy management, which I think is way more both useful and important than time management. I don't 
get the time management thing because time while it's a finite resource it's not one that you can consume or save right like you're not in charge of saving up your time for later or anything like that so you can't really man it goes at a certain rate what people are talking about is behavior management what do they do during that time and energy doesn't get talked about because time we have clocks and we have language and we have ways of comparing things. So of course it's so much easier to be aware of time and make it, Oh, at seven o'clock, I'll do this thing. Then seven o'clock rolls around and you don't do it and energy, which is harder to observe. And you don't have that, or you don't have some other thing. And so then you sit there saying, I blocked out the time. It's still free. Why can't I get myself to do this thing that I said I was going to do here? And it just gets lost and repeated over and over energy management. What you're, getting at, I talk about it. I'm just going to get myself comfortable with sharing all my very strange language. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's interesting. I talk about energy management as literally everything that you do takes energy, even things that you do without any conscious input at all, like your heart beating and whatever, right? Everything you do takes energy. Some things restore energy. And there are different kinds of categories that we can look at there. And all of this is ultimately individual. Everything we're going to talk about, the whole point is that each person is different in specific ways, but the frameworks are universal. So your mileage may vary on individual examples. Right. But generally speaking, I think it's useful to look at energy like, I don't know, restoration or recuperation or whatever, getting energy from things in three ways. One is the one that people tend to focus on the most, because again, it's the most easily to uh, most easy to observe and discuss, which is like organic energy, sleep. I have five categories here. I categorize things. I'm neurodivergent. <laughs> sleep, diet, physical activity, chemicals. And I understand there's overlap here, but I can break each one down. Chemicals and then medical issues, particularly undiagnosed medical issues. So those five things to me is, Everything that affects your organic energy fits into that category. And I think it's particularly important to note that sleep doesn't just mean amount of sleep or how quickly do you fall asleep when you start trying, that there are so many variables. Same with diet. It's not always like we know that there are people with ADHD for whom they drink caffeine at night and it knocks them out. Right. So different individuals respond differently. So it doesn't just mean get a healthy diet or exercise. It means you can observe in this category, what is your diet and what modifications can you make? What is your level of physical activity, not just exercise? And then chemicals, which, you know, this is the one that there's a lot of overlap because we could say neurotransmitters are chemicals and everything affects chemicals and whatever. But typically we're talking about caffeine and we're talking about sugar, even we're talking about alcohol or whatever other things. And then of course, prescription medications and those kinds of things, illicit drugs even too. And then finally, talking about medical issues, things like something I see all the time with ADHD people, undiagnosed sleep apnea, as an example, that there's something that is sapping your energy in a way that you don't know because you, you haven't compared it to like what the norm is, medically speaking, to know that you're off of whatever the typical experience is. That was kind of a big like categorical list. I think categorical lists like that are important and useful because it lets us put ideas and concepts into a place to remember them to manipulate them more effectively in our minds. You're not going to catch me whining and complaining about having categories. Uh, it's all a construct, right? It's a framework just like any other. And I always try to make it clear to people that what I'm trying to do is point out that there are multiple accurate ways of describing anything. So I'm not saying that you can't say I didn't do it because I was lazy. You can't, that's accurate. That's what laziness means, right? But there's multiple accurate ways to describe it. So I want to keep going until we find something useful. In other words, you're stuck with getting down there because you're saying I'm not motivated or I'm lazy. Well, what are you supposed to do about that? You get stuck. Whereas if we look through a different lens and say, maybe it's about energy, then we can start asking questions about what other things are taking your energy before that time, or what things can you do to restore energy or have more energy at that time and so on. Yeah. And I love it that you immediately attacked my use of the word lazy, by the way, because I don't like that word either. I use it because I'm assuming the people who are listening that's the language that they're going to be using. So I want to start at a place where there's an easy entrance, right? An easy on-ramp in that word lazy. But that word drives me nuts because of my work in schools, where we find kids being defined as lazy, as though that answers the question of why they're not being successful. And it doesn't. It just excuses the adults in their lives from figuring out what the real problem is that's keeping them from performing at the level that we think that they can. 
the same is true for adults, right? If I sit back and I'm like, oh, I'm just being lazy and sitting on the couch. I'm not figuring out why I'm choosing to not do the thing that I want to be doing. So I, I typically only use the word lazy when what I really mean is I'm sitting on the couch and recharging. Like I'm just, I have a day or an hour or whatever where I don't have to do anything. And so I can stop, which I don't do often enough. And that's not even being lazy. That's just resting. That's just recovering. Yeah. So laziness, and I do, I really like to be very specific with words generally. And yes, I feel the same thing with lazy that that you're talking about, both in terms of like, I've had it applied to me so much over the course of my life when I was younger and things, not that I resent it, but that the question is, okay, then what am I supposed to do about it? If everybody keeps saying this, what am I supposed to do about it? And nobody has an answer. So in a way you can kind of think of it like, Imagine anytime someone's using that word in a sentence and sub it out for broken. And is there any sentence where you couldn't do that? Probably not. It's hard to find it. And in particular, there's, there's something, a, a cognitive miser theory, the idea that the brain only spends resources if it has a reason to do so. Well, if my problem is I'm not doing this thing and the solution, the answer of why am I not doing this thing is because I'm lazy then my brain now considers that question resolved. Even though I can't do anything about it, I don't have any new ideas to try or anything. I say, why didn't I do it? I'm lazy. So I stop investigating the question, which is why it's such a harmful idea because it blocks, it's not that it's wrong, it's that it blocks us from looking at other things. What else might be going on doesn't get explored because, oh, it's about laziness. So really the only person being lazy is the person using the word lazy. (laughs) I, I like that. But I won't even say that because even that person's not. Very <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I will, I'll give a quick like reference. I don't know. Shout out. Uh, there's a book called Laziness Does Not Exist by Dr. Devin Price. And I'm a big fan of their work um, where some of the concepts I'm talking about have been influenced by that quite a bit. The idea that there's always a better answer, a more useful answer than just lazy. Yeah, that's awesome. So another thing we were talking about was productive discomfort. And before we started recording, we sort of found that we might've been thinking about it differently because when you started talking about productive discomfort, I immediately went to the ADHD perspective of like, yeah, doing productive stuff is uncomfortable a lot of the time because I might have challenges around initiating a task. I might have challenges around follow through. I might have challenges around completion. It might be difficult for me to break that task down into small enough chunks to understand what's being asked of me, those kinds of things. But you were going in a little bit of a different direction with it. Can you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's kind of a couple of things. One is the zone of proximal development. The other one's cognitive dissonance, but a combination we can talk about those things. And you're going to have to define both of those for us. Okay. <laughs> I just have to say them both out loud first or I'll forget where I, you know, I'll start talking about zone of proximal development, forget about the other one. Uh, so the zone of proximal development is a concept that gets used a lot in education, especially. And the idea is, I, I usually I try to use a visual element to this, which obviously doesn't work for the podcast, but I'll try to describe it. The idea is of the set of things that a human being is theoretically capable of doing you as an individual are capable of doing a certain subset of that. We can draw a little circle and say, everything in this circle is something that I can do independently, you know, more or less regardless of the context reliably. And then there's a narrow band outside the edge of that circle that we call the zone of proximal development, which means here are things that I can do given the right context, given the right support or the right resources or whatever, can't do it independently, but I can do it with support. And then beyond that is stuff that I can't do. doesn't matter what level of support I'm getting or not. It's just beyond what I can do. So the goal in education is always to aim for that zone, because if we're doing stuff that people can already do independently and have mastered, it's a waste and it's boring. And if we're trying to get them to do things that they can't do even with, even with the support we are providing them, then that's a waste and it's discouraging. So we're aiming for that middle level where it's difficult, it's uncomfortable, but it is doable given the support that you have access to right now so that you can work on that. And slowly that circle kind of expands, right? Those things that were just outside start to come inside and you keep moving out from there. And that zone of proximal development is where the productive discomfort lies because it's a little beyond what we can do, 
that's the subjective experience of being in that zone is that it is uncomfortable, but also feels productive, right? It feels, it feels like it's hard, but worth it. And that also connects to flow too, right? Because if we hit the exact sweet spot in that zone of proximal development, we're going to enter a flow state and, and be more productive than we would otherwise be and learn faster and all those kinds of things, um, which feels sometimes like hyperfocus, but isn't actually the same thing because hyperfocus for my ADHD geeks out there who are listening is typically entered through anxiety and is going to burn you out and wears us down. Whereas a flow state, we kind of enter it gently and it typically leaves us feeling more charged and energetic when we come out of it. So flow is like a healthy version of hyperfocus. I, I like those definitions. Can I share with you mine? <laughs> Just because I have like these specific ones. For me, back to the accomplishment equation, everything is finite resource. And one very important piece there that people miss a lot is attention. That of all the things that I could notice in any given moment, I can actually only notice a very, very, very small portion of those things. And we lose track of that. We think we mostly notice everything. And we assume that everybody else mostly notices everything that we're noticing because, you know, that's pretty much everything. So here's my little like off the cuff example that I always do. Until I say what I'm about to say five seconds from now, you are not in this moment aware of the feeling of the chair underneath you or the floor or bed or whatever it is. And as soon as I said that, you became aware. That data is not new, right? The sensors, the sensory nerves in your skin were picking up the pressure and the texture and all those things and relaying that to the brain. And then we have attentional processes in the brain that dictate, okay, we can only be aware of so much. Is this worth it? Yes or no. And those things are wrong all the time. <laughs> But that process happens and it's important, especially in terms of like flow and hyper-focus to know what that means is any resource that you spend has an opportunity cost. Anything that I am noticing is something else that I'm not noticing. And one way of talking about flow that I find particularly useful or call it peak experience or being in the zone or whatever version you know, that people like is between thinking and doing, right? between cognition, which is about engaging with concepts and ideas that are not present in the physical environment versus observation and interaction with the environment, which includes our body, like the actual moment, right? To me, flow is when almost all of your resources are going to the present moment that you're not thinking because people will relay that subjectively, right? It's like my, my head is quiet. I'm not thinking things are just happening without thought. So I think it's something to aim for. And I, there are specific ways to like try and encourage that to happen more frequently or within a, spe a specific whatever. Whereas to me, hyper-focus is about, I am dedicating a massive amount of my resources to a particular thing. And that might be a physical thing or, you know, that's through interacting with the moment, or it might be a cognitive thing, or it might be both. But hyper-focus is just about how much of my resources are going to a thing. Flow for me is how much of my resources are going to the present moment, as opposed to thinking about the future or the meaning of something or the past or whatever. I like that. That's good. Um, and I want to, I want to zoom out for a second and then we'll zoom back in to cognitive dissonance. But one of the things you got me thinking about was with regard to whatever we're doing, there's stuff that we're not doing, right. And whenever we're paying attention to, we're not paying attention to all the other things that we could be paying attention to that understanding. I'm not even going to call it a perspective because it's truth. It's real. Um, can help us to stop being so willing to say yes to everything because people with ADHD have a hard time saying no to stuff. So we often overextend ourselves because we've said yes to everything. If we can start recognizing that every time we say yes to something, we're saying no to everything else, it might help us not say yes to everything. And maybe we'll start saying maybe instead in a, let me think about it and get back to you and those sorts of things, which is not what we're talking about now, but it's a useful lesson hiding inside that might be helpful for someone. Yeah, that opportunity cost piece, especially when it comes to energy, because again, that's harder for people to observe. And by the way, in addition to the organic things, there are two other two other ways to get energy back, but I don't know what things we'll get back to. <laughs> no, we can, we can come back to that too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the opportunity cost, like say a thing costs $10. This is an economics the, the idea of opportunity cost comes from economics. That if something costs you $10, we think of that as a direct exchange. I give $10, you give me the thing. 
but money doesn't actually matter, right? Like nobody cares about money in and of itself, except for the value of what it can be exchanged for. So instead of that thing cost me $10, what it really cost me was the opportunity to spend that $10 on anything else, which is just a complex set of like cognitive tasks that we can't do. You can't like every time you spend money, you can't compare to every other thing you could potentially spend that money on, which is why we don't do it automatically. But it's a useful task. Uh, it's a useful framework, I think, to go back and be able to evaluate things beforehand or afterwards. And that also to wander further afield, that also helps us understand a scarcity mindset too, right? Valid or, or not. If I only have $10 and I need to buy food or pay my rent, that $10 is not something I'm going to spend to get, I don't know, a toy train because there's too much opportunity cost, right? Now I can't eat. I don't have a place to live anymore, that kind of thing. Whereas if I have $100, I'm probably willing to spend that $10 on a toy train because I can still buy food. I can still pay my rent, assuming rent and food is somehow $10 each just to make the math easy, not because it's real, but it can help us to understand the role that socioeconomics play in all of the decisions and choices that we make. Because also if I have a hundred dollars instead of 10, I'm not paying attention to, I only have $10 and I'm not spending energy and cognitive bandwidth on what am I going to do? I need $20 because I need to pay my rent and I need to eat food and I only have 10. How do I get 10 more dollars? Somebody with $100 doesn't have to worry about that stuff. So they can then spend that energy and cognitive bandwidth on building a model train set with the toy train they just bought. Which just as we're going down these like side note things, to me, I find that to be the most useful way to look at the concept of privilege is rather than something nebulous like unearned advantage, which who says what's earned and who says what's in it, right? Uh, that to me, it's more useful to think of it in terms of there are things that other people have to spend their resources on that I don't have to spend my resources on. So I have those resources freed up. And yes, maybe whatever things I accomplish, I still have to use my resource. I still have to spend my time and energy and whatever developing those things. But why it's, I think, difficult to acknowledge or to observe is because I know that what I'm doing, I don't know all the things that I'm not doing that other people have to do. So to say like, yeah, you had that time and energy free because you don't have to pay rent because your parents do or whatever thing. That it's not a it's not a terrible thing. It's just something to be aware of. And what makes it hard to see that, the privilege side of this, what makes it hard to notice that is that it's a lot like noticing the green lights. If you drive down a major road and I were to say, count the green lights, you're probably not gonna. You're probably just gonna drive through them. And then at some point you're gonna hit a red light and stop. And then you're going to go, oh, how many lights did I just drive through that were green? Because green lights don't get in our way. Red lights stop us. They're really easy to notice. That's a metaphor that I typically use for parents around like behavioral challenges for their kids. If they've got a kid that they feel like is swearing too much, there's probably lots of times throughout the day where that kid doesn't swear, but you don't notice it. Even if they might have ordinarily sworn in that situation, if they don't, you're not going to pick up on the fact that they didn't because it doesn't stand out. It doesn't bring the whole day to a halt. It doesn't cause any problems. But as soon as that kid drops an F-bomb because a hammer fell on their foot, you're going to be like, we talked about swearing. And they're going to be hopping up and down with a broken toe, totally legitimately having dropped an F-bomb, right? Like that kind of challenges, they're hard to pay attention to because they're green lights. And, and this is one of those kind of universal things about attention, right? Specific variations from person to person, but as a basically universal rule, the brain prioritizes problematic information. Things that are painful and uncomfortable get our attention before things that are not. So no matter what, whatever situation a person is in right now, and this isn't like toxic positivity saying, look on the bright side. It's just saying at any given moment, the vast majority of your experience is comfortable. You would only be able to, whatever element of it is uncomfortable, you can only be aware of that and focus on that because the other stuff is comfortable. Your metaphor before about the buying the train, right? Or the toy train for $10. Because the truth is in that situation, if you only have $10, you wouldn't even consider buying a toy for $10 because being hungry is the first problem. And until we resolve that, I can't even think about a toy. 
it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We got to start with the base level stuff. And only when that's resolved with whatever resources we have left over, do we go to the next level? And when that's resolved to the next level and so on. I like to talk about it as negative aims versus positive aims, your red light, green light thing. Negative aims, meaning I want there to be less of something in my life, some experience or something that's happening. I don't want it to happen anymore, or I want less of it. And those things happen automatically because we go throughout our lives, we experience pain, we experience discomfort. And our the whole point of what pain is, is I don't like this. I don't want it anymore. Whereas the flip side, positive aims, which are about adding something into your life that doesn't currently exist there or increasing something that doesn't happen automatically. We don't go through our day saying, oh, this is really nice. I should do this more unless we consciously put effort toward it. Because otherwise, like right now, listeners or you, Brendan or me, you know, what temperature is it around you? Are you hungry? Do you need to use the bathroom? Right. Like all these things, these signals that aren't coming in are what free you up to do the other stuff. I love it that you went to Maslow too. I'm a big fan of Maslow's hierarchy as a way to frame stuff. So yay. (laughs) I know we've opened up like eight things at this point. I'm circling us back. That's my job. I'm the host. Um, (laughs) So we're going to leave Maslow there. I want to circle back to cognitive dissonance, and then we'll go back to the two other ways to get energy returned to us. So with regard to productive discomfort, what's going on with cognitive dissonance? Cognitive dissonance is a term that's gotten out into like the pop culture and media more over the last few years. And it's primarily used to talk about a defense mechanism against the experience of cognitive dissonance. That's where a lot of like that original research was done. The idea that I have a certain belief or way of thinking or going about things. And now I have observed new information that contradicts my belief, which is an uncomfortable experience. And a very common way to resolve that discomfort is to just get rid of the new information either stop paying attention to it or argue against it or invalidate it in some way. And that's usually what people are talking about when they're talking about cognitive dissonance. That's why I call it productive discomfort instead to avoid getting it confused because what that experience starts with is you must conceptualize two mutually exclusive things simultaneously. If you have an old way of thinking and new information contradicts it, that means that in that moment, you are thinking both the old way and either the problem with it or the potential new way or whatever. Those are two cognates that can't coexist and you've got to get rid of one of them. And one way of doing that is getting rid of the new stuff. But one way of doing that is getting rid of the old stuff and choosing the new. And that's just change. The very popular phrase in therapy circles is change requires discomfort. Any new way of doing a thing in terms of the accomplishment equation is more costly than the old way of doing something, if for no other reason than because you have to think about the new way where the old way happened without thinking. So change requires discomfort. That doesn't mean you have to be uncomfortable in order to be willing to change, although that's true. It means that the process of change itself is an uncomfortable one because you have to have that internal conflict, which is really what therapy is about, right? We make space to hold these these cognitive dissonant moments or whatever, these productive discomfort moments so that people can choose which of the two they want rather than rejecting the new thing. Some of this is also self-perspective, right? Like our identity. Am I a person who is comfortable with change or at least trying to be comfortable with change or practicing being comfortable with change? Am I someone who believes that the old ways are the best ways? Because if I do, it's going to be harder for me to change even if I see the value in that change, if I've, my identity is wrapped up in, I've always done it this way. This is the way my whole family has always done it ever since my great, great grandfather started doing this. It's going to be hard for us to let go of whatever that is, right? That could be how you start a fire. That could be what you do when someone rings the doorbell. It can be anything, right? But the more we're locked into our perspective being rigid, the harder it's going to be for us to manage change because it's changing what who we are in a way that we maybe aren't comfortable with at all change in any direction, let alone something that's being asked by someone else or um, even something that we want, but we can't get past the idea that it requires us to behave in a different manner. And I think this is a particular pain point for people with ADHD Um Because I think part of the problem there isn't just necessarily like a dedication to the identity or whatever thing that I've had before, but also a complete lack of awareness of why I'm doing what I'm doing. In other words, because of things like intergenerational transmission, 
humans generally, the whole point of what we're talking about is a problem comes up, we're really good at noticing the problem, getting information about the problem and trying to resolve the problem. Once we start enacting that solution, if it resolves the problem, what humans are very bad at is there's no problem there anymore. So why would I bother going back and reevaluating the solution I've put in place to see whether it's still necessary or whether it's now suboptimal or even harmful, or if something has shifted in the context, this has happened to a lot of us over the last couple of years, especially where something that always worked for me all of a sudden is a problem now, but I don't even know to look at it because I just think of it as normal life as opposed to something I was doing to deal with a problem which no longer exists or whatever it might be. And pivoting a little bit from that, this also goes back to the word lazy. My dad was lazy. My grandfather was lazy. I'm lazy. It's just who I am. It's just how the men in my family work or whatever. And then I get an ADHD diagnosis, right? Now I've got cognitive dissonance because ADHD says I'm not lazy. There's a reason for all of these challenges, but also I'm lazy because that's what I've been told forever. And it's like generational maybe, right? Like my dad and my grandfather were both lazy. So I must be lazy. Does that mean my dad and my grandfather maybe had ADHD? Here's some more, like now it's generational cognitive dissonance going back down the line, right? And we also have the challenge of of that cognitive miser theory too around, but it's easier to just be lazy. I, I might go to my coach, go to my therapist and say, yeah, I mean, I have ADHD, but I'm also just lazy. Otherwise I have to work harder. I have to deal with this change. And if I just let myself be lazy, I can put that down, but then I'm also going to get frustrated by the fact that I'm not accomplishing and doing the things that I want to do. And I might not connect that to my identity as being lazy. The problem that they both have, both the concept of laziness and the concept of ADHD, the problem that they both have is that they limit the source of the problem to the individual. Laziness, we're saying you're choosing or you're not trying in some way or whatever to, to fail. ADHD, we're saying, no, you're not in control of it and you didn't choose it, but it's your organic biology or whatever that makes you fail, which is preferable a lot of the time because then we, then yeah, it's like, okay, good. I've been trying my whole life and thinking I'm broken in some way I don't understand. Now I have a label that tells me, no, it's not that I'm broken in a way I don't understand. My brain's just different, but they're both stuck on the individual. And the reality is that the context matters. There are things that I can do in some contexts and can't in other contexts. And it's not about me either in terms of personality like laziness or in terms of biology or you know whatever in terms of ADHD. There's nothing that anybody can do that they could do no matter what, not even breathe, right? Like you can't breathe underwater, for example. The context matters. It's not just the individual and people over-focus on that, which is part of what I'm trying to use the accomplishment equation to get to. What are the contextual factors that make something more costly or less costly for someone? I think a good example of this is my podcast listeners know that I'm kind of an engaging conversationalist, right? Like I'm a person who it's at least mildly fun to listen to. Otherwise you wouldn't be listening to the show. I speak professionally. People pay me good money to come and listen to me talk. They laugh, they cry. Like I bring them on a journey, right? I'm good at this in the right contexts. Because if you and I go to a Buffalo Wild Wings, I am not going to be an engaging conversationalist because there's too much sensory stimulation happening. There's screens, there's noise, there's other people talking, and I'm going to be totally zoned out and distracted because I'm going to have trouble filtering out all of that other sensory information. And that's going to make me a really boring person to talk to, or maybe even seem like a rude person to talk to at Buffalo Wild Wings because I'm going to be distracted. Or if you try to talk to me about the NHL, I'm not going to be a great conversationalist because I don't have a lot of domain specific knowledge there, even though when we talk like we're talking now, then yeah, we can both be compelling and concise and listen and respond to each other in real time. Whereas things that we have less experience with, you know, we got it or a different contextual factor. Maybe you and I hate each other for some reason, you know, like that's going to make it more costly. All of these things matter and they're all worth exploring if what we're trying to do is change the experience. And one for parents to, to have is when you go out to see extended family, right? Aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, that kind of stuff. And someone goes up to your kid and says, how's school? Because that's what everybody asks. Your ADHD kid probably isn't doing that good in school, probably makes them feel bad. And that question is going to shut them down immediately. 
obviously not true for every ADHD kid, but for at least half of them, there's some negative emotions around school. They're not going to want to talk about school. That question is going to shut them down and they're going to talk to that aunt, uncle, grandparent less because of the situation at hand. So have a better question. And beyond that specific moment too, it's the messaging that you're sending to someone that their identity is primarily about how they perform at school. So it's not just feeling bad in the moment, it's building a pattern of because I struggle with school and that's all anybody cares about, I am not very worthwhile. To me, a lot of this is the, the underlying concept behind neurodiversity is that any way of being is situationally advantageous or disadvantageous, including ADHD. It's not a superpower and it's not a curse. It is a disorder. It's a helpful way to be depending on what you're trying to do in what context you're trying to do it or a, a detrimental way to be. And I think a lot of what we're talking about is just missing that, that it can be both in different situations. Let's circle back to the two ways that remain to get energy back. Uh, I'm going to use my like super nerdy Greek philosophy terms for this, but there are other terms. I just like these ones because they're more memorable and they don't get used for other things. So they don't get as confused eudaimonic joy and hedonic joy. One way to talk about what the subjective experience of enjoyment is, is what it feels like to get energy back. That's what we mean when we're saying I enjoy this, right? And there's two different ways of enjoying something according to this, you know, like old framework of looking at that I like. Hedonic means something that you enjoy the experience of itself, moment to moment, the experience itself, paying attention to your 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 body and your environment, like we were talking about, that is enjoyable. The other is what they call eudaimonic joy, which is joy that's found in meaning. That the thing I'm doing in and of itself, the experience may or may not be enjoyable. We hope that it is, but I enjoy it anyway because I've connected this experience to something else cognitively. Either it's some future goal that I'm getting closer to, and so it feels good to do this thing because it gets me closer to that. Or like you were saying, it's an ideal or a value or an identity that I have and doing this thing, which I don't like, still feels good because that's what a good person does. And I like to be a good person. So those are the two other ways to restore energy, either moment to moment, something you enjoy the experience of, or feeling as though you are getting closer to something else that matters to you. And of course, doing both together is the ideal, right? And just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Yes, I'm going to do something that I do a lot and people hate. <laughs> I'm going to throw out like a bunch of things real fast because we only have five minutes. And I'm going to put this out there to everybody like, you're not going to hear it all. Attention doesn't have room. Awareness doesn't have room to track and remember every single thing that I'm saying. But if I say 10 things and you can only get one of them, your brain gets to determine which one of those things is most worth paying attention to. Whereas if I give one, if it works for you, great. And if it doesn't, you're out of luck. First, one thing I like to talk about is an, a, a framework or an exercise that I call ask once, then ask why, which means because the brain doesn't want to think about things without a reason, you don't have to think you couldn't even if you wanted to think about every request you make of yourself or someone else like your child or anybody else. You just ask. You want something, you ask for it. And then the next step is if it doesn't work out after that first ask, Either I've asked myself to do something and I didn't follow through or I asked somebody else and they pushed back in any way, failed to follow through, asked me why, whatever. The second step then is for me to ask myself, why am I asking for this thing? Before going back to just asking a second time or asking harder or trying to incentivize, that second step is why do I care about this? And it's not to say that you shouldn't, although sometimes when you ask that, you'll realize, especially as a parent, like, oh yeah, I guess that doesn't actually matter. It just seems like it should or I've heard about or whatever, but also because there's a reason that people with ADHD care so much about knowing why something needs to be done. We tend to focus more on that intellectual cognitive side of things, meaning if you tell me to do steps one through 10, I'm going to ask you why, not because I don't think I should, but because I've had a lot of experiences where I did step one through 10 and the result was not what the other person wanted. And I didn't know what result they were going for. So it's just a waste of all our time. But if you tell me what you're going for, what you want from me, then I can say, okay, maybe I don't have a better idea and I'll do step one through 10, but maybe I have some experience with this and I can say, oh, if that's what you want, I can do it better this other way. So we want to explore the reasoning there, that cognitive miser thing, help the brain understand. So in terms of energy management, when you're making a plan, right? Usually again, we're focused on the time. If you're making plans ahead around time and they keep falling through, 
that's a good sign that you're missing something else. And a good place to start with that is energy. Start trying to plan energy ahead as well. And then you're putting tasks at places where you have both the time and the energy available. And in addition to that, one thing that's super helpful in that process is when you plan to do something and the time arrives and you don't do it, instead of treating it as a failure, oh, why can't I follow through on this? A plan is your past self's best guess about how the future would work out. And so if it does, awesome. And if it doesn't, we say, good guess past self, but we missed some things. Here's what I know now about why this won't work. So let me take the new information and try to make a new plan. But generally speaking, all of this is going to go a lot easier, especially for parents. If you focus on listening to what they're saying to you, if they tell you they can't do it, then treat it as though that is a solid fact, as opposed to getting into any kind of an argument about, no, you can, no, I can't. Okay, you can't within this context. So how do we shift the context? Because one of the things that comes out of the accomplishment equation is if I ask you, Brendan, do you want a million dollars? You're probably going to say, yeah, sure. I like, yeah, give me a million dollars. And then if I say, great, all you have to do is give me $2 million. Now, all of a sudden you're going to say, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And if we only look at the value side, we see somebody go from wanting a million dollars to not wanting it. And we don't understand why it's because the cost changed. And in particular, if I say to you, okay, okay, fair enough. So you give me 2 million and I'll give you 10 million. Well, now it's worth it. It's worth the cost. But if you don't have $2 million to give me, you're still going to say no. And if I say, okay, fine, I'll give you 20 million. If you give me 2 million, you still don't have it. And you're still going to say no. And every time I raise the value of that, all it does is make you feel worse because you already wanted it. You already felt like you were missing out. Now I'm just making it an even better thing that you're unable to do or missing out on. And parents and kids especially get locked in that dynamic a lot, trying to make something more valuable when the issue isn't the value. It's what they can afford. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.